Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today I have a friend of mine on here, man, and he is a South Carolinian. We're going we're gonna to claim him because he spends enough time down here to say the least. Uh, but my good friend and CNN colleague who needs his own show, uh, really, really just needs his own show, uh, John Avalon, how are you? I'm good, man. I appreciate that. How are you doing? I'm good, my brother. I'm good. How's your Brad doing? He's also the he's also the second best political commentator in his own house. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. No, Margaret's great. She sends her love. Uh, everybody's doing good, man. Everyone's doing all right. Well, look, you know, we start each show here pretty much the same way uh, because I like to give my my listeners an opportunity to learn more about. Uh, my guests that I have on and my friends and their eclectic backgrounds. And your background is interesting. And walk us through the arc of your career um, from journalism to politics for some time now. Walk us through your first political job as a speechwriter for then Mayor Giuliani to your work yeah. in political journalism. And at what point did you decide that television and writing about politics would be your calling? Hmm. Uh, well, you know, I always have believed that that politics and journalism you know, you should be driven. They're two sides of the same coin, right? You should be drawn because you care about the country. You care about politics, policy, elevating the, the civic conversation. You know, I, I did begin um, after kind of falling in love with politics around Bill Clinton's campaign in 92 and 96. Um, I worked for Rudy Giuliani when he was the mayor of New York. I became his chief speech writer at a ridiculously young age, like 27. And um, after being an, an, an advanced man, but at the time, actually, you know, Rudy and Bill Clinton's politics weren't as different as you might imagine. Um, Rudy's changed a lot. And uh, I, I I'll, I'll defend a lot of what he did as mayor. And I was you know, proud to work for him. But but we have definitely parted ways politically. <laughs> you, but, I can attest that you guys have grown apart. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just once you try to overturn an election, I, I don't have a lot of time for that. But but there's a lot to, you know, I, I was proud to work for his administration, was there through 9-11. Um, and then uh, when when we left City Hall, because uh, he was term limited, I went and started as a, a newspaper columnist at uh, the New York Sun. And again, it was it was it was still about writing and politics and policy. But one of the things, you know, when you you served in government is that sometimes the outside voices can have more influence in shaping a debate or elevating an issue or an idea than than the people inside <laughs> inside the meeting. Yeah. It's, it's it's a balance. Um, so started there and wrote my first book, Independent Nation, in 2004. Met Margaret, uh, wrote uh, then started at the, the Daily Beast um, as a columnist, ended up becoming editor in chief, wrote a book called Wingnuts about extremism in American politics wrote another book uh, called Washington's Farewell. Uh, and then uh, three years ago, uh, after being five years as editor-in-chief of The Beast, moved over to CNN full-time, where I'd been a contributor to join the morning show uh, as an analyst and anchor, and uh, and uh, do this daily reality check segment where I try to try call bullshit on the idiocies of politics. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, you know, just bring some history and some humor and some perspective uh, to our political debates, because they've been so insane lately, they could use it. Yeah, I just had a I just had a moderated panel um, with Carl Rove, um, and it was refreshing to be able to have a 
policy, a high level policy debate, you know, and we mm-hmm. don't, we don't, we don't have enough of those anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we're moving away from what did such and such tweet, et cetera. Okay. Before I get to, before I get to your book though, let, let, I want to, uh, one of the most amazing things uh, about you is your, your political mind is, is just brilliant. You and Axe, I'm blessed to have both of you all in my life and you've written extensively or written extensively about centrism and the values or virtues of it. Um, as someone, for example, who wanted to see voting rights and police reform done to only to see Senate moderates kill it for the <laughs> lack of a better word, talk to me about this preservation of the filibuster um, and the way people see it as more important than two core issues for so many voters. And what do you tell people who believe that centrism left the core of the Democratic Party uh, holding a bag and may contribute to Democratic losses in the midterms? Well, first of all, I'd say, you know, pull back and, and centrism is 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 uh, is about principles. It's about focusing on how to find common ground and building on it. There are ways that are more effective to be a centrist and ways that are less effective. I don't believe <laughs> the, the split the difference approach uh, the, the mushy moderate stereotype. I totally reject. I'm about the vital center, about reaching out, trying to form new coalitions to move ideas forward. Uh, for me, you know, <laughs> The, the the while Democrats, I think, were were some were a little quick about saying, let's blow up the filibuster because one day, you know, they'll be in the minority. And we've already seen it with the Supreme Court. Uh, you don't want this Republican Party with with a 51 vote majority to be able to do whatever it wants. The country, you know, you, you want checks and balances. That said, if you believe like I do, that our democracy is in deep trouble right now. Um, that election reform and changing the incentive structures in our politics is critical. Why? Because right now all the power is in the extremes. You know, these closed partisan primaries, the rigged system of redistricting we're seeing right now, um, you know, what's what's happening in Ohio right now, what's, you know, North Carolina's pushing back, what's the way that Nashville's been cracked and packed. You know, these are issues about that are moving politicians away from from reaching out and trying to reason together and solve problems because the vast majority of them don't have competitive general elections. So so I do think that combating voter suppression, election subversion efforts is absolutely critical to the future of our democracy. And and I think you got to reform the filibuster. I think you can mend it, not end it. You got to move back to a talking filibuster. Yeah. Plenty of problems with that. But at least then, you know, where people stand and, and you can't simply kill something with a silent hold sent by email. Um, put the pressure on the on the minority folks who are trying to hold up the bill. Um, so I, I think I think there, there are a lot of examples of, of hugely effective centrist leadership. And, you know, from being in South Carolina, that there's a certain blind spot that certain folks have on the far left where, where they don't fully appreciate we need as a country uh, more rural and red state Democrats. We need no more state districts in play. And you're not going to get that solely by playing to the base. No, I, I mean, I tell folk all the time, the progressivism of, of, of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doesn't win a race in South Carolina. No, as a matter of fact, it hurts. I mean, yeah. look, you know, look at what, what happened in, in, you know, all the Spanish language disinformation that was going out around socialism in the last election really, really eroded Florida. We need more competitive races, more competitive districts and, and the extremes of, of both sides. Well, well, I want to reject both siderism because there's no question that the yeah. far right is far more powerful and larger than the far left. Uh, but but it contributes to that that feedback loop that stops folks from from really, you know, running competitive races. And, and you know, when in South Carolina, when Joe Cunningham won the first district, that was a step in the right direction that got pushed back. Um, but we we just we, we desperately need 
more red state and rural Democrats. We need urban Republicans, too. We need people who are, who are kind of just more competitive general elections will lead to a more representative democracy. And right now you got to push back not only on multiracial democracy, but majoritarian democracy. And that's a fight as old as time. But we need to recognize it for what it is. That's a fact. Talk to me about cinema and mansion. Um, you know, they've they've created or crafted out this new fame at the expense of Biden's domestic agenda. Do you see that as being a positive uh, a positive emergence or development for our democracy? Uh, no. And, and I think Manchin, I, look, you know, there are times I want to take him at his word about his desire to, 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 to move things forward. But, for example, when he single-handedly scuttles Build Back Better, as opposed to being in the poll position where he could actually say, look, here's what I want in the bill, and it would probably get done, you know, find a way to get to yes. Just don't kill it, you know, for, for obscure reasons. If you want to rebrand it the Family Fairness Act and say, look, you know, we got to have a couple priorities where we're going we're gonna to focus on that, you know, killing the child tax credit because you're, you're, you're pissed off at people in the White House doesn't make sense for people. I, I, I do think that Manchin is- Particularly in, people in West Virginia. In West Virginia. And I've done that in a reality check. I was like, look at all these elements that would help people in West Virginia. Um, so, it, and you know, and there, there's climate and, and so many other priorities that you have supported by the president, supported by a majority of Americans. And I don't think that any one senator should be in a position to put a hold on that. Um, but he is in a position where he could say, look, this is the kind of bill I can support. I, I would just like to see more of that constructive uh, conversation. And, and, and I appreciate his sincerity and a lot of where he's coming from. But I, I'd, I'd like more, you know, Angus King's, Sherrod Brown's, uh, John Tester's uh, folks who, who, you know, you're going to have principal disagreements. You should. Mark Warner. But, yeah. Mark, Mark Warner. But work towards actually getting something done. Don't be Dr. No. That, that's not a constructive role that I think the center is uniquely positioned to play, particularly in a, in a polarized country. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear. That is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. 
you've tracked the rise of extremist uh, groups in the country and the mainstreaming of fringe groups into our yes. politics. What do you think has caused this rise in extremist groups? And how do we root out extremism in our politics? I mean, the, the perfect example is, and I, I think that the most corrosive thing we have in our politics is the way that we redistrict and draw maps every 10 years. Uh, literally, it's not sexy, but it literally is the most cancerous thing we have in our democracy. But I'm not sure that that tells you why we have a Marjorie Taylor Greene either. So how do you how do we root this extremism out? So it, it kind of sort of does, though. Right. I mean, I, you know, I'm not afraid to bring the wonk and talk about policy, because if you actually, you know, if, if you're just into politics for the, the tweets, then you're actually not playing a constructive role in self-government. You're, you're, you're not actually. No. You're, you're, you are corrosive as well. <laughs> yeah. So so, you know, don't don't be a slacktivist about this stuff. Don't don't be afraid. You know, every 10 years we have the redistricting. It's a rigged system by design, often, you know, inclusion between the two parties, uh, but not always where they're killing the number of competitive districts. And if you have the combination of the lack of competitive districts um, and closed partisan primaries in a party, particularly that's been captured by Donald Trump and, and, and the far right nativist wing, then you're going to get a lot of Marjorie Taylor Greens. If you have competitive districts, if you have open primaries, if you have ranked choice voting, you got a whole, whole different deal because the incentive structure in our politics isn't going to reward those people who play to the base and try to act crazy. And then you got a bunch of cowards who are afraid to speak out and do what they know is right because they're afraid they'll lose these close partisan primaries. So that is an original sin. Um, but I think also in the fullness of time, you, you, you take a big step back. We're watching a backlash to globalization, uh, a, a, a rejection, a, a demographic panic on the part of, of white folks who are um, just terrified about real multiracial democracy. And so they're resisting majoritarian democracy and, and representative democracy. That's not democracy, you know, and, and part of the reason you study history. Uh, and I'm so passionate about using history is because we got to We got to apply the lessons of the past. You, you got to look at, you know, the, the in, in the rise up to the Civil War, you had a bunch of elites posing as populists who were, you know, terrified of demographic change. And they rigged rules. And, and, and you know, we got a civil war out of it. Reconstruction reminds us that you cannot take any gains for granted. I mean, you know, if you look back at, at, at the. The, all the tactics that were used then, the violence, the voter intimidation, the voter suppression, the election subversion, including, by the way, redistricting in 1870, the way the courts were packed by ex-Confederates uh, to, to overturn civil rights laws that were passed in the 1870s. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book, I mean, people don't believe this if they've been sheltered from it or if they've been taught it like a completely sanitized BS version of Reconstruction. You know, just look at, you know, Alabama, where there are 180,000 registered black voters uh, in 1900. Two years later, there are 3,000. Mm. Don't tell me there's not a problem. Don't tell me there's not a problem that's baked in the cake of our history that we need to reckon with and we need to learn from. And that's why you got to pay attention to this stuff. It's not that it's necessarily Jim Crow 2.0, but do not underestimate the way that democracy and representative democracy and multiracial democracy has been subverted in the past. And we cannot repeat that. We got to learn the lessons and, and learn the right lessons to, to form a more perfect union. Speaking of that history, which is important, I'm glad you took us there. How would you grade President Biden's performance thus far uh, it, with the context of history? Not so in the, a vacuum. Yeah, man. And, and that, that's the critical freaking point, right? I mean, you and I, you and I know about this and I, I got a lot of, of, of affection and respect for you, um, personally, but also your, your political analysis. Um, you can't judge Biden outside outside the context of his time. Um, 
he has achieved a lot with the narrowest possible margins in the House and Senate. Right. So, you know, partly when progressives got a little bit high on their own supply and talking about, you know, FDR, LBJ, esque, you know, uh, uh, you know, agendas, you know, those guys had massive margins that they, they, they could they could work with them. And you have an obstructionist Republican Party, you got a handful of folks who I mean, you know, you get you get 37 folks in the House, um, you know, who who stood up to Donald Trump in some capacity. He got like, you know, a handful of votes in the Senate. Um, so you don't have a lot to work with. He's gotten a lot done. I do think that the infrastructure bill is historic. It's not sufficient. I think we need, I mean, if the challenge of our time is about defending liberal democracy at home and abroad, which I believe it is. You need to pass some package of election reform. And the fact that Manchin came out with a bill that even codified voter ID in a responsible way and couldn't get a single Republican to sign on says a lot. Um, that, that that's mission critical. I think some version of, of Build Back Better, you know, called the Family Fairness Act, you know, needs to pass. Um, but he's been working diligently. I think the right wing echo chamber has a disproportionate impact on people's perceptions. We've talked about the way it's driven perceptions of him and, and Vice President Harris. Um, but you, you got to push back on that. I think among independent voters, you see his numbers crater after Afghanistan. There's a pretty clear cause effect in that. So he's got to build back that that and truck. I think he, I think he is with the sound approach that they are taking in uh, Ukraine, Russia. Now, I agree. the the issue that he's going to have is that this shit going to last forever, and nobody knows where Putin's going to go next. And then you got to deal with China as well. So you 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 uh, does he sustain that? But what's his grade? You went all around the book and oh. you didn't give him a grade. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I hate giving folks grades. I, I'd, I'd give them a, I'd, I'd give them a B plus right now, a minus B plus. And, 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 and here's why, you know, it, it's a deeply polarized environment. I think he is the most important thing history tells us is that character is the most important quality in a president. Joe Biden has character. He is a good man and, and he cares about the country and he understands policy. Uh, and, 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 and that's a welcome change. And the one thing I'm real impatient about, and I've tried to make this point over and over again on our air, perfect's never on the menu, right? Especially at a time, we, we are not as evenly divided as it feels. We're a 70, 30 country on most issues. It's the 30% screams at the loudest. They suck up all the oxygen and you can do it on policy issue after policy issue. Um, so, so that should give folks some, some, some courage and some comfort, but his instincts, I think, are, are basically good. I think, you know, there's a little bit of time takes a little bit off the fastball and people respond to that. Um, and I think, you know, you got to acknowledge that. But but where it counts, I think history history will be kind. But this is this is a jump ball. I mean, Condi Rice said the other day he deserves a lot of credit for for uniting, you know, NATO, NATO. and against Putin uh, with these the sort of economic sort of full court press. Uh, that's going to may be able to ultimately constrain or undermine Putin's rule. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of active wear. That is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. 
Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Let's talk about your new book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. What's it about and why did you write it? The reason I'm laughing is Margaret always gives me, you know, gives me a little guff for that. I mean, 16,000 books about Lincoln. Why, why are you taking this off? <laughs> um, <laughs> you, have, you have the one angle that nobody's ever covered in history. About yeah, him. no, and, and, and I was, I was kind of kicking the tires and I was, I was happy to see. No one had done Lincoln the Peacemaker. Um, the book's about Lincoln's plan to win the peace after winning the war his vision of national reconciliation and reunification. Um, and the reason no one had done that book before is he gets assassinated five days after Appomattox. I was going to say, there's not a whole lot of, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of material there. Well, he doesn't get to implement his vision, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have a vision. In fact, gotcha. he definitely does. And if you, I, I focus on the last six weeks of his life from the, the second inaugural yep. address to his final speech, but also you, you can see in presidential proclamations about reconstruction, you can see in, 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 you know, his, his, the, what he says to generals Grant and Sherman and Porter on the river queen and in Petersburg, he has a very detailed view. And basically his prescription is unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace. Um, and and I, 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 that ultimately is actually the prescription that we put in place finally after the Second World War that helped create the international order that's created 70 years of, of relative peace and prosperity in Europe, which is pretty much unprecedented, which we're seeing a challenge to today. Um, but, but I think Lincoln's leadership offers us still a path away from violent polarization. And, and at a time, it also the history of that time reminds us we've been through far worse as a country. We'll get through this as well. But Lincoln's character and his wisdom and the fact that his, the core qualities of his character, are empathy and honesty and humor and humility, those are all things that we can learn from uh, just in terms of leadership lessons in, in how to stand up um, and, and try to be a uniter in divided times, which is the most difficult thing to do. But if Lincoln could do it in the Civil War, pretty sure we can we can stay focused what do you think historians and our general uh, and our general understanding of lincoln gets wrong about him well a couple of things um i, I think first of all we, we we too quickly build in buy into the whole graven image of him as a very stern stentorian kind of grave guy um one thing is he, he spoke he he spoke in parables, which he learned from you know the Bible and from from Aesop. He told jokes all the time. Partly that was to disarm people. It's a very good and important technique. Also, it was self medication. Um, he was a guy who combined opposites in many different ways. He was born in the South, moved north and west, but he was constantly struggling inside himself between this sort of sunny joking disposition and depression, melancholy. 
And, and, you know, there's a story where one of his friends, um, after a devastating union loss, goes to the White House and finds him on the second floor reading aloud from a book, one of his favorite humorists, a guy named Artemis Ward. And a friend, uh, Isaac Arnold, the congressman, is, is furious. He said, what are you doing? How can you laugh at a time like this? And Lincoln, in his telling, throws down the book. And with his eyes welling up with tears, says, don't you understand that if I could not find a way to laugh, to laugh I could not live. It was, it was medicine. It was self-medication. Um, and, and, and so I think, I think that, that uh, sort of, you know, the fact that Lincoln's constantly reading humor at inappropriate times uh, is, is much remarked upon by his contemporaries. Also, the fact that when he assumes the presidency, he's like, seems on the surface to be the least qualified guy imaginable. He's got no executive experience. He's got no military experience. He's got one term in Congress. But what he has is character and the capacity to grow and learn. And, and that, that makes all the difference. And an inner decency, you know, um, that, that he shows us that kindness is consistent with effective leadership. And that's a lesson we can't learn too much. What, what, what do you want readers to get out of this project? Well, I, I, first of all, I want us to think about the study of peace. You know, we, we, there are a lot of uh, history books about war. It's high drama. It's understandable. But, but simply looking at the best practices of war misses the, the, the full equation. You can't understand peace and war in isolation. And so we do need to learn what are the best practices for securing peace, a just and a lasting peace. Um, not in a utopian way, you know, but, but how can we make progress in that direction? What are the lessons of Lincoln's leadership uh, that, that can unite us in divided times? Um, and, and then there's also just the, the, you know, all my work does deal with how you overcome hyperpartisanship and polarization. Um, and, 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 and I think learning from the, the, the lessons and the leaders of the past is absolutely critical because it directly applies to our time. You know, I found this quote from Grant. Um, and we can also talk about, you know, just the way, the way we got off the Lincoln path with Andrew Johnson, which was completely disastrous, but Grant got us back a bit, right? You know, the fact he, he goes to Congress directly and lobbies for the 1871 anti-KKK Enforcement Act, which he has implemented by a Southern attorney general named Amos Ackerman. And, and they really killed the first incarnation of the KKK for a time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they do it, by the way, by focusing on, you know, they, they arrest and imprison the leaders. They send them to prison in Albany, um, you know, and, and, and it really does. And it's because they are murdering black local elected officials in the South. Um, and they're just, you know, this this wave of terror because the, the, the military gains had not been secured at the time. But but Grant, 10 years after Adam Appomattox is asked, you know, well, he says, if we ever have a second civil war in this country, the dividing line won't be Masons and Dixons, he says. He says it'll be between patriotism and intelligence on the one hand and uh, superstition, ambition and ignorance on the other. And it's times like that where you look at the endurance of the Confederate iconography, the fights over the statues and all this other stuff. You realize why it is so essential that we learn our history, uh, why we learn the right lessons from it uh, and, and apply it. And that's you know what what Lincoln did in his best speeches as well. You learn from the past, you apply it to the present. So you can chart a path to a better future. Man, this book needs to be in every school today, but probably won't be because waves of cultural of anti-intellectualism are just swarming our institutions of higher learning. Where can people find this book? Where is it available? Uh, well, everywhere and anywhere, but especially go to your local bookstore. Support your local independent bookstore. Um, but and also support, uh, support, support Hoovalon. They need it. 
So go out and, and buy the book. I'm going to go buy a, a few more today uh, from Barnes and Noble just because I'm going to give it out to some of my my college nieces and nephews. Beautiful. Uh, I think it's essential. But I want to say thank you for your time today, John. Thank you for joining me. I know you're tired. He's coming in after the show. I don't know how people do morning shows, like work on them, like get up <laughs> early and do it. But thank you so much for spending some time with Bakari Sellers podcast, brother. Hey, man, it's always a pleasure. Love your family. And I'll actually be back down in South Carolina at the end of next week. So I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Give me a call. I'll come down and I'll come see you. All right. Beautiful. All right, Thanks, man. man. All Take right, be easy. Thank you.